Okay. All right, so the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the question of religious truth, wondering if there is any. If there isn't, then what are we doing here, right? If we're just going to all talk about how we feel, that's a psychology session, and you can do that under many contexts other than religion. So there either is religious truth or there isn't, and of course, we know that there is because God either exists or he doesn't. If he does exist, this is a doctrine called theism. If he does not, that's a doctrine called atheism. And so last week, we looked at the arguments in favor of theism and saw there are 19, some 19 different versions of the first cause argument or the cosmological argument. And we looked in depth at that argument to see how, whether there's a finite past regress going back to the Big Bang, or if that kept going past the Big Bang into some sort of infinite expansion and um, retraction of the universe, as some theorists have suggested, no matter how far back it goes, whether the, finite, whether the regress is finite or infinite, we saw the argument said that God has to exist. So we know then that God exists. We know that he's omnipotent, meaning he's infinitely powerful. We know he's omniscient, meaning he knows everything infinitely. And finally, we know that he is unbenevolent. We also are able to derive from those properties that he is one, right? that he is eternal, and other things directly related to his status as the creator. However, if God is infinite, it follows there are an additional infinite number of things about him that don't necessarily follow from that particular thing, him being a creator. There's lots of other truths about him about which we would know nothing at all. And if for some reason, and we're going to start to see the reason in the next couple of sessions, if for some reason God wanted to communicate additional truths to us about himself, he didn't leave it contained in the natural world. So no matter what we study and learn scientifically about the world, we're not going to find out, oh, you know, God is a trinity of three persons in one substance, right? You're just not going to come up with that. You might think, well, maybe he's 17 persons in one substance or one person in one substance. How would you ever know that? Or uh, what about the history of the angels? What do we really know about what the angels have been up to? Almost nothing. When we get to the other side, I'm looking forward to reading the complete history of, the history of angelic activity. It's going to be extraordinary. Once you find out all the things your guardian angels, just your guardian angels were doing for you all your life, you are going to be so shocked. You never know. Maybe the first person you'll meet when you get to the other side will be your guardian angel. And then you'll be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And you'll be grateful. Well, there's an entire history of what the angels have been up to. How would we ever know that stuff? So unless the angels told us, unless God told us this stuff by some means, we would never know. Now, the problem with that then is that however he tells us, it has to be told to us in a historical context, right? At a particular point, this information gets dumped into our laps. It's not like it's a general thing that anybody can look at a rock and come up with the properties of rocks the way we do in the natural sciences. These are not universal truths that are available to all men all the time. They're delivered presumably at certain points in history through certain people. We call these people spokesmen for God oracles, prophets, lots of different words to convey the notion that somebody is telling us something from God. And of course, immediately, we ought to get suspicious. Anytime somebody tells you, well, God told me this, instant alarm bells go off, right? Really? God is talking to you, huh? Yeah, right? Why would I ever think God's talking to you? So we ought to be skeptical. And if we're not, all we have to do is look at the history of people who decided to follow these quacks and they end up losing their liberty, their money, their children, their spouses, and ultimately their lives. 
right? We've had very recent cases with Jim Jones, David Koresh, these types of people, and we don't want to fall for the same types of traps. So how do we tell an authentic spokesman from God from some interloper, some charlatan, who will subject us to a kind of religious tyranny? And so last week, we looked carefully at that question to see how we can trust a means of this sort of verification, because we cannot directly verify the content of the message. Okay? If God made me a prophet and I said, well, you know, prior to the creation of the world, this class of angels had a dispute over which cloaks they should wear with this group of angels. You'd be like, how would we ever know that? Right? How could you verify that? And you wouldn't be able to. So if you can't directly verify the content of the revelation, you're going to have to check me out and say, okay, how do we know you're a prophet? Right? You claim to represent a supernatural being. Show us some supernatural effects that demonstrate that. And so when we look in history, we find two massive cases of such supernatural effects, which we call attestation miracles, because they are designed to attest to of great revelation of God in this way. The first, of course, through Moses to the Jews, the giving of the law. And last week, we looked at this monumental barrage of miraculous events that was surrounding Moses as a prophet. And of course, an even greater, far more powerful group, even though it wasn't destructive. The greatest power is life-giving. Destruction is easy. Giving life to things is hard. Jesus, right? And Jesus is surrounded by miracle after miracle of all different kinds. God constantly saying, this is my son, hear him, right? And there aren't any more. You don't find anything like that in history. And so the Christian revelation and the Jewish revelation, which of course is contained within the Christian ones for we Catholics, those are, are vouched for prophets. And if the prophet is vouched for, then what he is saying is true because God is not a deceiver. All right, an example. One point Jesus walking around doing his normal thing and he comes upon this fellow who is paralyzed. All right, and he looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now let me tell you, if you decide to go into false religion, this is the stuff you say. Right? Who can verify it? Does the guy know his sins are forgiven? No. Can we cut open his chest as biologists? Look at his heart and say, oh, it's not black anymore. Nope. So, right? Easy to say. And his audience is like, easy to say. Who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, as usual, very dramatic guy, very dramatic. He waits, lets it sink in what he's up to. And of course, they start to get angry, as usual. Then he says something very interesting. So you may know that the Son of Man himself has the authority to forgive sins. He reaches down to the paralytic and says, take up your bed, walk, and go home. And instantly, the man jumps up capable of walking. Now, what did Jesus just do? Was there anything in legs being renewed so that one walks, that when you examine that, you see, ah, clearly his sins are forgiven. Do you see forgiveness of sins and legs being restored? Me neither. So it's not direct verification, is it? It's not like it entails it. How do we go from legs being restored to forgiveness of sins? An inference via what? Why? <clears throat> Why would you presume that? What does restoration of legs imply about Jesus? That there is some holy power at work. Correct. And is God a deceiver? No. Therefore, can we trust what Jesus says? Yes. 
Okay, so I've been smalling over this this week. Good. There's a question I have. It's not directly related because the people that were doing the healing are Jesus. But we've seen a lot of Christian healers. I mean, I went to charismatic church for 20 years. Mm So at my church, it wasn't so prevalent, but there were kinds of healing and praying over people, but especially the people on TV, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Where you would see people get up and throw their crutches away, or mm-hmm. you know they would take off their ray bands and they could see and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What's the correlation between? Because it's easy to look cynically upon those things, and frankly, I think a lot of them are fake. They might be. What's the correlation though? With, I mean, is it? I've heard people will argue and they say, well, these things are either, they're either myths or those people were playing along and it was just part of Jesus' game, just like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the count, you know, what are, what's the counter to that? What's the... Well, Jesus' miracles are of different kinds, for one thing. Okay. All right. Uh, commanding demons right. who can be clearly verified they're in there, have been messing with these people are knocked out of these people and they return to their sanity. He controls the weather. Storms instantly stopped. The ability to make... I mean, remember we talked... Well, there's many things Tammy Faye never did. right? And remember we talked about the nature of attestation miracles, many different kinds, precisely because you might not take walking on water as a miracle. The rest of us might be like, that's impressive. You might say, no, I know he's turtle hopping. Okay. That might not do it for you. So what about any of the other thousand miracles that we have listed, right? The other thing to think about, whoever today claims to be a faith healer, whatever, none of that matters because that's not the kind of miracle we're concerned with here. We're only concerned with attestation miracles, miracles with the express purpose of vouching for a prophetic revelation. So there are miracles that have been attested to, claimed, let me not use the word attested to, have been claimed from the mythological traditions you said, well, did they happen? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they didn't. Were there charlatans? We know of definitive cases in the past where there were charlatans. We've even found uh, Egyptian temples, and we can see the little passageway behind where the, the priest hid to talk for the god. Okay, so yes. Do people trick people in the past? Yes, they did. Do people do that today? Yes, they did. Do. Was Jesus tricking people? Well, with Lazarus, he waited for four days. When they opened the tomb, he stank. He was the only one in the tomb. Everybody knew he was dead. The Pharisees and religious leaders were so upset about the Lazarus miracle because they said, look, we can't deny a miracle happened. What are we going to do? we got to get this guy. Curiously, they don't think, man, we really ought to repent of our sins. No, no. Got to get him. Let's attribute the miracle to the devil. Brilliant move, right? They know you can't deny a miracle happened. So they've got to come up with some other theory to explain it. So Jesus' kinds of miracles and the kinds of stuff that Moses did too, nothing like that happens today. What's more, sometimes people say, well, why didn't he do it nowadays when we have scientific analysis? We can do really serious studies to verify this stuff. Well, it's also the time you can fake anything. How would you fake some of the things Jesus did? Nowadays, we'd be like, well, there are those Hollywood guys go again. Well, you know, maybe. 
I find that dubious, but just in case. Does that help? It helps a little bit. I mean, like I said, I came from a, a charismatic tradition, and I actually know someone personally mm -hmm. who had epilepsy since he was a baby and was prayed for and prayed for and was cured. And sure. As an adult. God can do whatever he wants. Remember the point about the Holy Spirit. He yeah. blows wherever he wants. So he can use people that we think are entirely disreputable to achieve great ends. He can use people who are entirely reputable to achieve great ends, or he can choose not to. We just have no way to predict this. And God is merciful, listens to our prayers, and sometimes we come up with these stories, and everybody has one, where some doctor said there's no way you should possibly have recovered from this. Granted, the entire church was praying, you know, and what do you know? Permanent healing. We're like, well... That sure looks kind of miraculous, yeah. right? It is part of our tradition. Other Angelica. Yeah, yeah, there are many of these types of things. But we don't have to worry about figuring out, well, was that one legitimate or was that one legitimate in order to talk about the attestation legitimacy of our founder. Yep. Okay. So Jesus in that example of the paralytic shows us what faith is. Okay, faith is trusting the content of the message because reason has vouched for the veracity of the messenger. Faith is trusting the content of a message because reason has vouched for the veracity of the messenger. Because we have good reason to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we can see that, we trust the message we're being given which we cannot see any verification for independently. If we could, we wouldn't have to trust Jesus at all. right? If Jesus said, well, you know, guys, two and two does make four, we'd be like, that's good, but I know that already. And there might be some truths that are revealed through both reason and faith, like the moral law. God might inscribe it on stone because it's so important. It doesn't make any difference. We still break all those laws. But, you know, to really emphasize it. And there's a small overlap. Okay, so good on truth. Now what we want to do is turn our attention to what is it for? What is God up to with us? And to look at that, we have to turn our attention to the question of what human nature is for, what is the good for human beings, and that leads us into our special topic <clears throat> for tonight on ethics. So let's start by noticing something very interesting about human beings. Everything that we do, all action, all human behavior, is done for the sake of some purpose. Okay, this is the general structure of all human behavior. If something was not being done for a purpose by me, then I would say that it was happening to me. Right? So you see this arm thing, you're like, what's going on with him? Oh, he probably has one of those spasms. He's not doing it. It's not his behavior. The spasm is happening to him. So this isn't human behavior, although in this case it is because I'm using this example. You understand, right? Anything that's behavior, anything that's an action, is chosen because of some reason. That's what it means for human beings to be free, rational agents, or as we like to say sometimes, persons. Okay, these are the prerequisites of what it means to be human. And we'll see how that plays out. You say, why does that matter? Well, because of what this structure entails. Which do you think is more valuable to us? When I do something, is it the action I'm doing 
or what it is I'm trying to get to. Which do I place a higher value on? The purpose, right? If I could achieve the purpose without the action, I would just skip to it. Right? You say, well, how do you mean that? Well, supposing you want to get promoted in the Marines, and the sergeant says, go dig a latrine. You say, oh, I love to dig latrines. <laughs> no, you do not love to dig latrines. You hate digging latrines. But because you want to look good with the sergeant, you'll dig the latrine. The purpose or end, the value here, is here. Value. Notice, all action, all human action has inherent value into it. There's no such thing as value-neutral human activity. This is true in every context, including places you've heard that we can have value neutrality, like education. Education is inherently value-centered. You say, why? Because the teacher, me, is standing up here saying, you really need to be educated. If education is value-neutral, you would rightly say, why? How dare you? You impose your education values on us, right? It's not value-neutral. It's clearly a value system. But everything we do is value-based because you're always doing it for the sake of something. And this thing, the purpose, is greater value. Now, what if this purpose is itself an action that leads me to still another one? Another end. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's suppose this. I say, well, I need to go to college. You say, why do you want to go to college? Because I want to get a great job. Okay, that's my end, my purpose. But then you say, but uh, why do you want a great job? Oh, well, I'd like to make some good money. Okay, why do you want to make money? Oh, well, I'd like to be able to support my family. Okay, why do you want to support your family? See what I mean? We can keep pushing this. And at some point, you're going to start giving us answers that are more nebulous, right? <laughs> Fundamental values, things that you view as the really greatest goods. And that's the way the structure goes. By this system, we can figure out what it is we really value. And here's what an ancient Greek philosopher named Aristotle said. That process cannot go on to infinity. It can't just keep going and going. At some point, there must be a value that is supreme. A value which is not itself something which entails something else. He called that thing the greatest good. And here's why. If not, if our ends just keep going and going and going and going and going, then activity of human beings is fundamentally futile. It all is meaningless. Something has to ground action. There has to be for some ultimate purpose. And so Aristotle says this. It behooves human beings to pay attention to what that purpose is and to discover it. And then, like arrows shot at a target, aim the arrows of your life at that target. Because if your arrows are aimed over here and the good is over there, you're going to end up being miserable. Now think about that. What Aristotle is saying is this. There is a good for human beings that is good for us simply because we're human. And as human beings, we need to think about what that is so we don't end up pursuing the wrong thing. Think about the things that people pursue. What are some of the things that people pursue today as supreme ends in their lives? Money. <laughs> Prestige. Power. Happiness. 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 Happ
You see how easy this is to come up with all kinds of candidates for the supreme good? And you see how, if we start to think about how easy it is to start knocking these things off, right? Power, it's only as good as what it's used for, right? And you're back to the question, but how should I use my power? Money is only as good as the things money can buy. And money can't buy any of the things you really value. Friendship, honor, virtue, justice, love, right? Ridiculous. Fame, the most fleeting of all things, yeah? Now, happiness gets interesting. Right? Think about this. Does anyone say, I pursue happiness so that I can go to the grocery store? No? I pursue happiness so that I can go to the fair. No, you're going to the fair because you hope it'll somehow contribute to your happiness, right? So happiness is actually what we all know is the supreme end, isn't it? This is the name everybody gives to it. In fact, there's no question at all about what it is. We all know it's happiness. That's the supreme value. The trouble is we have to immediately ask what? What is happiness? What is it? And it's popular to say happiness is whatever you want it to be. Just like in religious truth, people have the idea that it's whatever you want it to be. It's your truth versus mine. In ethics, people say the same thing. Happiness is different things for different people. But that's easy to disprove. Very easy to disprove. If happiness were whatever you wanted it to be, almost all of us should be happy. You want to know the path to happiness, if that's the definition? Set minimal goals. I will give you an example. My goal that will make me entirely happy for the rest of my life is to pass this line from here to here. When I pass that, I will be gloriously happy and I will never have any problems again. And stop, look, see the way she's judging me? Look, you're imposing your values on me. It's my happiness. How dare you judge me? Heard that kind of thing before? Okay, well, let's test the hypothesis. Ready? Drum roll, please. Oh, it's better than I thought. Right? No, none of you buy this. Amazing how you start to judge me. And rightly so, because it's rubbish, isn't it? Happiness isn't whatever we want it to be. Happiness is hard. That's why we struggle to achieve it. It has a genuine structure. If happiness is nothing but a feeling, we should all be on drugs. H, right? What is it? Heroin? Happiness? Same thing. If it's nothing but feelings, then inject. You'll go feeling fast. But people on drugs are miserable. While they're high, they'll tell you they're miserable. Which means happiness is more than a mere feeling. And of course, our mothers told us this. Didn't they tell you? Don't forget to distinguish the illusion of happiness from the real thing. Well, if happiness is nothing but a feeling, then the illusion and the feeling are the same thing. And yet we look at the Hollywood types, right? They've got all the feelings, all the pleasantness, and then shoot themselves in the head. How's that even possible? It's possible because they've been mistaken. Happiness is not a feeling. Happiness is not having all your dreams come true. I'm sorry, but Willy Wonka lied to us. <laughs> Happiness is not pleasure. You can have a lot of sick pleasures that you can be in the midst of and not be happy about it. See what I mean? So, back to Aristotle. 
we need to think about what this thing is. What is the greatest good, the highest value for human beings? And to give you a little clue, let me tell you what it's not. It is not the highest or greatest good for rabbits. Right? Think about what rabbits do. They eat carrots, they dig holes, and they make lots more rabbits. Rabbit happiness and human happiness, different. We're different kinds of beings. Similarly, it's not angelic happiness. We're not angels. Whatever it is that floats the angels, that's not us. So to understand what human happiness is, do you see what we need to discover? What human beings are. If you want to know the purpose of great fluting, you need to understand the nature of flutes. If you want to understand the nature of great shipbuilding, you need to understand the nature and purpose of ships. Similarly, says Aristotle, if you want to understand the good for human beings, you need to think about what human beings really are. Everyone understand the argument so far? Okay, so what are human beings? Well, fortunately, good old Aristotle helped us with that too, by giving us a method to figure out what things are. Yes, he was a genius. It's called definition. He said, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yes, you're right. All definitions in this sense consist of two parts. A general category called a genus, and then a specific difference. Something that separates what we're talking about from every single other element in the genus. Say, so give me an example so I know what you are talking about. It's too abstract. Fair enough. Let's define something. How about bachelor? We want to know what bachelors are, yeah? So, so we'll start with genus. Into what general category will we put the bachelors? And you can imagine different general categories. Minerals. Many of the women are like, well, a lot of them are. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not by effect, by nature. Okay, are they yeah, plants, animals? Is animals still too broad? Yep. Yeah. Humans. It's still too broad. Human men. Animals still too broad. Male. Male. One second. I'm going to put the little H for human, okay, just in case. So, males. You cannot be a bachelor if you're a female. We have a different term for you. We call you a bachelorette, right? Yeah. All right, so males. Now, the specific difference is that which distinguishes the bachelor from all the other males. So we can uniquely identify him. So what do we have to add to turn our male into a bachelor? Okay, lots of different definitions. What was that? Yeah. Okay, single. Now, we have a proposed account of what the specific difference is. Now what we do is test it. We try to come up with examples or counterexamples to see if this is going to do. In other words, can any of you think of a single male that's not a bachelor? Yeah, if so, then we got to do more work. A widow, not a bachelor. A baby boy, not a bachelor. So we need to modify, revise our definition. But we're on the right track. Single was getting us somewhere, but we need to refine it a little bit. So give me something else. Okay.
So we know it has to be a person of a marrying age. That's why our child is eliminated. Our widow, unfortunately, still fits. Okay? Yeah, unmarried isn't good enough because the widow is now unmarried. Never been married covers it, yeah? See how this works? Marrying age, never been married. Okay, so now again, try to think of any example of a person who fits that but still is not a bachelor. Priests. You're like, darn, priest. Those priests got us again. Okay, well, let's add it in. Okay, a little stronger. Non-religious, there might be another form of a person like a priest, so... Okay, let's figure out a way to say that. Uh, a marrying age, never been married. How about marryable? That way, there could be lots of different reasons. The priest one, right, and other types. Okay, so if you had a marryable, but never been married, but of marrying age, male, would that not precisely grab all the bachelors? No. Nope, another example. Well, uh, it depends on if you have a gay male um, and you don't have marriage between, you know, if, if a man wants to marry a man and there's no marrying of men in your society, then that would eliminate him. You know what I'm saying? Yes, it would. He couldn't marry a woman. Well, he could. He could, but it would be... It would be interesting. We'll address we'll address this question in a future class. Okay. <laughs> but aside from that specific case, and we don't know whether we would classify them as bachelors either. That's part of the question, right? We want a case that's clear. So you see how this works with the specific difference that allows us to uniquely identify who the bachelors are. Yes. Okay. So with that in mind, now we just need to do this for human beings. How hard can that be, right? Yeah, I know you laugh because it seems like it can't be easy. And yet, it just might be. So once again, we'll start with our class. What is our general class or genus? Are we plants? Animals. Animals? Animals. Again, we'll test this. We know we're not plants because we obviously don't use chlorophyll and all that. And we're not rooted to the ground like plants tend to be. Animals move around. We do many of the things animals do. The next class above animals is what? Mammals. Mammals are a kind of animal. Yes, sir. They're the, like higher order, but still animals. Once you jump up above animals, what class of beings do you have? Life is a general category. No legs at all, actually. Can't you distinguish with a soul? Yes, so... A, a being that is purely a, wouldn't technically be a soul, it's called a spirit, and that is a... Well, I'm also speaking of humans that have a soul. Yes, but if we're animals... Angel. Angel. Angel's the next category up. You understand? Yeah. Okay, animals are embodied. Angels are disembodied. Yeah? Okay, are we disembodied? No. So are we angels? Yeah. No. So we got the right class. Okay. <laughs> Everyone understand? Okay. okay. Now, what makes us different from all the animals? What is our specific difference? That is the next question. I will grab a sip of water while you mull that over. Well, we have logic. A soul. We have what? A soul. 
Okay. If we say that, someone's going to say, what do you mean by soul? So let's not talk about what the thing is that does what it is that souls do. Let's say what it is that souls do so we can identify the activity. Yeah? So what is it souls do? Well, elephants. Do you hear about the Thai elephants? They all jumped over. They clearly care about each other. So that can't be it. Consciousness. And what do we mean by consciousness? Because the, uh, the elephants seem to be thinking on some level, right? We know dogs can do logic. We know they can die. Self-aware. Self-aware? Yeah, those chimps seem to be self-aware, some of them. Keep going. Yeah, some of the animals seem to be conscious of that too, though. It's interesting. There are no animal moralities. Let's put that right here and think about that. Is there anything else that fits this kind of category? Maybe we can group them together and figure out the general function that explains that. What else do only human beings do? Okay, but that's an accident, right? Let me give you an example. How many of you have been to the circuits to see the, element doing, the elephant doing art? How many of you think that's art? Creativity. <laughs> no animals do creative arts. And certainly not the way we think of what art is, as something bespeaking something else. Poetry, sculpture. Is it art or creativity? Because my cat's very creative and now he hates Yes, it's the arts. Actually, the arts. Yeah, because animals can also learn new things. A pot of killer whales has recently figured out how to kill sharks. Okay, and they then pass this information on to another pod. They killed a great white. When the great white died, it released a chemical into the water, a warning sign, and every great white within 100 miles immediately skedaddled. So can animals learn new things? Of course, this is called evolution. They're learning new things all the time. Sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it too proves to be a complete disaster called extinction. Okay? <laughs> they can definitely learn. So in that sense, tremendous creativity in the animals within certain confines. But the arts... Right? I'm an elephant. I'll be putting on a show this week. I hope you all can come. I'll be doing a poetry reading. Nope. Animals never use imagery. There's never any form of this bespeaks that. They never give a rose and it's a sign of love. They never give this bread and it's the body of Christ. See what I'm saying here? Okay, one other big thing the animals do not do. What else? What is it? Have you ever heard a pigeon tell you, well, I'm really hoping to go to Mars. You know, I feel like it would be great for pigeon kind <laughs> if we could go to Mars. Future plan. Like hope? Or Goals. Dream. Aspire. Goals. Science. All the sciences built in with the drive to invent although that starts to get us into the arts. We're talking about knowledge, knowing. The animals don't care. They don't write books. They don't go to school, right? That some of them don't go into other habitats with suits on, like we do, spelunking into caves. They'd be like, what's wrong with you creatures? We're like, we have to know. We are knowing things. They are not knowing things. Curiosity. <laughs> All three of these have something in common. 
that only human beings do? Worship. Well, w worship is possible because of these factors. I'm going to tell you it because it's a little technical. Rationality. And what that means is very specific. It's not reasoning, because animals can clearly reason about all kinds of things, right? Your dog can decide where he wants to go, where the smell is, make an inference, and go after it. Rationality means seeking out the common element. It's called a universal. So in science, we don't just have experience of the fact that when you drink this tea, you feel better. We want to know why. No animal ever wants to know why and starts to investigate the properties of tea. The animal just knows if you eat this thing, you get sick. If you eat this thing, you feel good. All right, we're doing well. Some human beings function that way. They're not using their humanity at that point. They're using their animality. But the seeking out the underlying universal that explains all the cases where tea and then things that are not even tea because they have the same property, oh, that's special. And that is the fundamental function of science, isn't it? To seek out the underlying universal, universal. Only human beings do that. The arts works the same way. All imagery takes a concrete particular thing like a rose and associates it imagistically with a big idea like love. A lion bespeaks majesty. A waterfall bespeaks power. You right? You understand how this works? Animals don't do this. We cannot help but do it. We invest everything with significance and ritual. Why? Because we are driven to the arts, because we have this capacity. That's why we look at the world and we see its beauty. The animals do not. And finally, and correctly, morality. Morality also takes a bunch of particular elements and puts it under a universal concept. Because I am like you, you are like me, I would really think that you ought not to chop off my arms and legs. So, by inference, I say, because he's the same sort of person as I am, I should not chop off his arms and legs. You say, well, that's just the golden rule. Yes, it is. The golden rule is a rational application of recognition that we're all the same sorts of creatures, therefore what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And we're all capable of doing that. And as we think that through, it comes out through things like conscience, moral laws, moral rules, etc. But all three of those activities require this special property that no animal has. Everyone see that? So what is it that makes human beings unique? Rationality. The capacity to seek out the universal in what we do, what we know, and how we behave. Okay, now, you say, that's great. Why do we do this? Good question. <laughs> we wanted to know what it means to be human because we're trying to understand the good for human beings. And we said that whatever it is, it pertains to being human as opposed to being rabbit-like or being angel-like because we are neither rabbits nor angels. So, the good must be tied up with what we are. So, we are animals. What is the good of our animality? If you are in your highest form of your animal state, what do we call you? Which part of you is your animal self? 
how would you describe, like, which part of you? Would you call it your imagination? Your body. Okay, when your body's in its proper state, we call you? Fit, healthy? So, there's a series of habits based on health that move you toward health. Agreed? Yeah? Those habits are good habits because they help you get to that good, aren't they? And what do we call a good habit? A virtue. So to be in your highest animal state, you need to possess a virtue of health, which means you habituate yourself by all the normal ways that you already know about to become healthy, and thus you have animal health, the health virtue, virtue health. Now, what about rationality? Well, in rationality, it's a little more complicated because as we just saw, it applies to what we think and it applies to what we do. Now, when we think, what are we trying to find? What did we say is the driving force of our thought in the first class? The love of what? What ought we to be possessed with that Pontius Pilate didn't seem to care about? Truth. The goal, the end is truth. So here's the question. What are the habits of mind that help us become more truth-forming in our beliefs? And that also is a virtue, isn't it? And one of those virtues is wisdom. These virtues, because they pertain to what we think, are called intellectual virtues. Things like honesty, for example. If you're not honest, it's going to be difficult for you to pursue the truth. As soon as it disagrees with what you wanted to believe, you'll come up with a way to stop looking. Right? With respect to what we do, how do we want to behave, well or poorly? Well, and so our action is all aimed ultimately at the good. Again, we want to have habits that help us get to the good. And what do you suppose we call those good habits? Virtues. But only now, instead of being intellectual pertaining to thinking, they are moral pertaining to how we behave. You say, what would be some examples of those? Justice. Courage. Moderation. Everyone understand? Now, if the highest status of your animality is health, and the highest status of your rationality is intellectual and moral virtue. And if you have all three of those, you are therefore in your highest human state, correct? And what do we call the highest state of a human being? Happiness. Happiness. Therefore, you say, what is happiness? Virtue. The Greeks figured this out 2,500 years ago. 
How we Americans have forgotten this? That is a great question. Our ancestors certainly knew this. But when you start relativizing happiness to the individual, and you start telling people that if they get what they want, they'll be happy, you're damning your entire society. The truth is, happiness is hard, and it pertains to every element of a human person being directed to the good. How? By habit. Not even just individual choices. We're talking about the character. Who you are when you don't even have time to think, right? That tells us who you really are. And when your habits of thought are always aimed toward the truth with wisdom and comprehension and intelligence, and when your moral faculties are aimed by courage to always pursue the good even when it hurts, by justice to give each person what is owed, by moderation to hold yourself in check with respect to what's good for you and others, when your life is characterized by those qualities, then you are in your highest possible state. And Aristotle says you are happy. Everyone understand? So why isn't, I, I'm a mental health professional. Yes. So why aren't philosophers in charge of fixing us <laughs> rather than mental health professionals? Because we're, we're failing miserably. Well, <clears throat> where am I in time? Part of the answer to that question is going to reference the issue of suffering and how suffering impacts virtue and why it impacts virtue. And Aristotle had a very early mental health theory, which will link up with your question. Pedagogically, I really should just answer your question right now, okay? But there's something else I need to tell you guys about virtue first, and then I want to directly address this big problem of suffering. So it's a big, important question. Part of the reason you don't want philosophers to be doing this, to answer you frankly, is that the people in my profession are horrible people. <laughs> they have themselves completely abandoned this and reinterpreted all these things to serve their current interests. It's very rare that I find a philosopher who follows the old ways. I myself was not trained in this. I was trained at a Jesuit university, and only one professor even bothered to teach this stuff. Everyone else taught all complete rejection of these things. I had to figure this out for myself the hard way and eventually finally figured it out. So, and I want you to see how happy I am? What about love? Where's love? That's a great question. Because it seems to me like, um, like if you have um, human action, then love is an action word. Yep. And if God is love and humans what? Oh, 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 oh. love. Do you see God up here yet? No, God's not there Okay, yet. very, very but point. if we can use, if we act in love in all yep. things, then it seems to be that we encompass all of this anyway. Yes, it's just the one very right. four-letter word that gets us there. Well, how we get there is the question. You're absolutely right. What is the highest standard of conduct here? It's justice. Mm -hmm. You're saying there's something bigger than justice. There's love. Love is not in here. No. And it's not in Aristotle either, except for his theory of friendship. But that's complex. Because if you love yourself, you have good health. If you love, yes. if you love learning, you have truth and yes. wisdom. If you love 
to, if you love other people, you're naturally going to want to strive towards justice. No, not necessarily. Courage and moderation. It depends on what it means to love people. Yeah, I, I know. Well, right? So part of the issue here is where are we getting our definition of love? You already know this answer. You said, well, God is love, obviously. Uh-huh. Okay, but our pagan friends like Aristotle, oh, who yeah. are their gods? They haven't got there yet. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they've got Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite. Okay, yeah. and They're 2,000 years before they get to God is love. Socrates knew that God was love. Yeah. Okay? Unique, though. He rejected the standard Greek pantheon. He knew God was not Hera, not Zeus, not Aphrodite, not Athena. He had no idea who God was. So he called him the God. He did not know his name. Uh-huh. And so after he died later, they erected an altar to him, to the, to the God, God, to the unknown God. <laughs> and when St. Paul gets to Athens, he yeah. immediately realizes exactly who Socrates' God was and says, well, I'm going to tell you, the God of love. Right. Okay, But yes, there's a very non-relational element here. This doesn't seem to be about loving other people. It seems about me establishing my own happiness by being virtuous in myself. And that is both true and incomplete. And you're right. And the reason why ultimately has to do with who the supreme good really is. Because wisdom, justice, these are all properties of whom? God. We haven't quite got there. And the reason for the Greeks is very simple. Their gods all emerge out of the created stuff. Hence, they cannot be perfect. So why would you worship them? Our God is worshipable, not because he's all-powerful, strictly speaking, but because he's all-good. Now, we know from our former discussion that those are mutually entailing. But it's the goodness of God is why. The Greek gods were not good. So Aristotle ultimately said that God is a perfect idea instead of a perfect person. See? So they had perfection. It's an idea, not a person. Hence, you know you don't love him. You just think about God as an idea. Oh, I see. So they haven't got to love yet. Not as a person. The Jews had it, of course, because God created the world in the first place. God's name was given to Moses way earlier, but the Jews didn't do anything with it, philosophically. They didn't develop it at all. And we'll look at that story as we keep talking. But you're absolutely right. And we're going to see where that oversight drives us straight into Christ- the Christianity and the Christian God. And why the Christians said yes, 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 yes to all of this, but we're not there yet. And that's the rest of the story we want to start telling today. But terrific question. Okay, let's talk a bit about the nuts and bolts of virtues, how they actually work, and then dive into the suffering problem that you're starting to address for us with the problem of mental health. We're good? Okay. Okay. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of virtue. Now I'm going to give you the technical definition of a virtue. If you're writing this down, write it down. If you're not writing it down, start thinking about it because this is technical. I'll explain each part, then we'll apply it, and you'll understand what I mean. A virtue is a rational modification of matter. Okay? The rational part we already understand because we're rational agents and we're supposed to aim ourselves to what is true and good. 
It's when you take yourself and change according to something that's good for you. Modification is easy. That's the change. The change we know is habitual. And then matter means of some human capacity when we're talking about us. So every virtue takes a native human capacity and shapes and molds it toward what is good for us. Every single human capacity has a proper good to it. No human capacity is in and of itself evil. The Jedi are wrong. Do not confuse Star Wars Jediism with Christianity. Anger has a proper good. Fear has a proper good. Misused, yes, they give us trouble. But just intrinsically in principle, not bad. So let's see how this works. Let's take a natural human capacity. Let's talk about fear. You agree that's one of our natural things. We find we can be afraid. OK, good. Now, let's suppose you had too much fear. It was just outrageously fearful. What would we call you? What name would we give that kind of a quality of character? Anxious. Slovenly is more to do with laziness. Someone who's terribly afraid, over afraid, we call that person a? Cowardly, correct. All right? But strangely enough, we can also talk about someone having too little. The guy who jumps out of the foxhole. They got Johnny. I'm going to get him. And charges into the smoke. And you're like, where did he go? What's he doing? I don't know. He's talking about Johnny. And, you know, seven hours later, he comes back with 100 prisoners in tow. And you're like... How did you do it? He says, what? I have no idea. Right? You heard about these kind of things, these berserking cases, right? Where they have no fear, and their animality part takes complete control of the mind, and they're just gone. Right? The berserkers of old? Somebody who's too little, we have a word for them, too. Anyone know what it is? Impulsive would be a way to talk about it, but in a character term, we call it rash or brazen. Yes. And that is also a vice. What is the proper balance? The amount of fear that's proper to a human being, what quality of soul do we give you? Cautious is too, yes, courage is correct. Circumspection would be the intellectual correlative to this, yes. Because all intellectual virtues and moral virtues ultimately play into each other. All right? Courage. Now, here's the catch, which is disappointing, but unfortunately true. There are two vices for every virtue. You're like, wait, that is unfair. That is unfair. Oh, I agree with you. Oh, it's unfair, but it's true. Whoever said life was fair, right? Life is not fair. Let's just get used to it. All right? Two vices. You can have too little of the thing. You can have too much of the thing. Just the right amount as it's called the golden mean, just the right amount, the just the right balance, that's the virtue. You understand that? Let's use another example, another human capacity. Same structure, 
just different things. So get rid of this. We're not talking about fear. So we get rid of that and we get rid of that. All the rest of the structure is the same. Let's talk about desire, um, food. No, let's not talk about food. Let's use alcohol. That's more fun. Okay. Let's suppose you drink too much. What do we call you? Alcoholic is a, we call it that. You can be an alcoholic, but then you have the moral problem. What do we call the moral problem? Being drunkenly, right? Drunk. Notice, and we're going to understand next week why this is true. All of the moral vices degrade human nature, and they infect not just your soul, but your body, and they contribute to the destruction of your mind and the destruction of your body. Evil is not a thing. It's a lack of thing. It is a privation. It deprives you of the fullness of what you are. It is a cancer that eats away at you. It corrupts every element of the human person. Stop doing bad things. Right? But this is the reason. It will gut your happiness. The only possible way to be happy is to be good. All right, I'm going to put it to you really hard. Ready? Right now, every one of you can think of three things you know you're doing right now that are wrong. Yes, I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> Why? Why are you doing those things? Happiness is hard. Yep. Stop doing those things and do the good things. You can choose right now, today, and if you do the right things for the next 30 to 40 days, that's how long it takes to do a new habit, you can start to change that. Alcohol. Too much. You're a drunk. You say, too little? That's a vice? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, the teetotaler is a description of it, but the moral term is called, St. Thomas calls it, insensibility. The person who thinks the enjoyment of the senses is somehow suspicious or wicked. You say, well, weren't the Puritans like that? Mm -hmm. Apparently. And so have been a lot of Catholics historically, unfortunately. Get this, ready? Insensibility is every bit as much of a vice as drunkenness. God gave you a body to be enjoyed. The body is for the completion of human beings. So, the proper use of alcohol... Very good. So, Jeff, what you're really talking about is not when someone abstains from alcohol for a health reason or for, nope. for other reasons in nope. order to... There are many times we have to abstain from alcohol. You might abstain from alcohol as part of a fast. You might abstain from alcohol because your friends are all alcoholics. And if you serve alcohol at that meal, you're violating charity. There are many times that out of charity or good sense, you're not going to serve alcohol. And also, it might have to do with you. Okay, this is where the relativist issue, it's different from different people, does come in. But it's not relativism. 
The relativism is only in our matter. The rule is the same, the golden mean. But you might be able to handle three glasses of wine, and at one and a half, I'm starting to lose it. Right. And you might say, or I might say, I'm the one and a half. Yeah, that's not fair. Tough. Yeah, that's, just that's just how it is. So the insensibility can also apply to not just alcohol, but other things in the senses, like dancing. Of course. And perhaps food. And eating, right? Sex. Right. On all these areas, there's too much, there's too little. On sex, too much is if you're married, it would be adultery. There's no such thing as too much inside of a marriage. Adultery. If you're not married, we call it fornication. Sex belongs within the marriage covenant. We'll see that when we talk about marriage itself. Okay, and again, it has to do with the fundamental nature of why we marry and what's going on in love. But again, there are some people who think that sex is intrinsically problematic. Okay? The priests don't think that sex is intrinsically problematic. They take a special vow, but they still have a commitment to sexuality. It's just not in a physical form. Okay, that's why, for example, priests usually have a special connection in maternal terms with the Blessed Virgin. And if you look at nuns, they'll wear that wedding ring. Okay, in the end, we all, for our completion, need the other gender. That gender could literally be biological. My wife is female, I'm male. That is that connection across the gender line. But God is masculine. The church is feminine. So a priest caring for the church, there's that thing, you see? Okay? So sometimes these get fulfilled in higher orders because the genders go up and down the chain of being. Okay? But to crush gender, to crush marriage, to crush family, that's a big mistake. And unfortunately, we've had some people who are nervous, sex, you know, oh, I shouldn't be interested in that. Yeah, you should be, because you're human. You're supposed to love sex. You say, well, I don't. I was abused. Well, then you're going to have challenges and difficulties, and your spouse is going to have to understand that with the same charity as the person who doesn't serve alcohol to the drunk or the alcoholic. All of this is rooted in charity. This is the great teaching of St. Paul in the First Corinthian letter. We have tremendous liberty of Christians to do and enjoy all these amazing systems God gave us. We should be able to enjoy food. But if the person you're with has some hang-up about something, like back in the day with the Jews, they could not tolerate drinking blood. They could not tolerate eating meat sacrificed to idols. So you don't serve that to your Jewish guest. You say, but I have my rights. Your rights? Who cares about your rights? What matters is the needs of your brother. Okay? Now, if your brother's a Pharisee, and is imposing this on others, though that's completely different. And you see what Jesus did. He ate the corn when he wasn't supposed to. He ate the showbread like David did, right? Remember all this stuff? Pharisees, we're not talking about Pharisees. We're talking about weaker brothers. Pharisaical people always think they're stronger. Once they pull that move, it's a completely different story. Every single virtue works like this. If you're going for too much food, we call you a glutton. You say, what's too much? That's variable with who you are. you got to figure that out. And it changes to different age. My son, teenage boy, it's hard to find limits. Me? <laughs> uh, clearly, I need to find my limits. And I'm working on that. And I know it's very hard. But I'm getting older. The amount of food is less and less. Oh, the pain of... <laughs> All right? I do not struggle with insensibility when it comes to food, let me tell you. <laughs> Every human capacity fits this model. A golden mean, too much, too little. Rational, 
modification of your human qualities aimed at the good, habituated. How do you do this? Tremendous amount of work. Okay? And this is where prayer and fasting have huge benefits. We'll talk about that later in our course too. Okay, how much time do I have now? 20 minutes? Oh, that's good. All right. Now, by the way, we'll see how all this works with the theological virtues. Again, another class. And that's, by the way, we'll fully develop the love theme. Oh, okay. Okay? We'll start to hint at it now. But we'll start to push it hard as we go along here. Can't do everything in one class. I wish, I wish we could. <laughs> wish we could just go on 24 hours. Then we'd finally see it all. <laughs> Not true. Okay. <laughs> See, the benefits of a wife, yes, you're right, love. All right, I'm going to get a sip of water, and then we'll talk about the problem. Saying that happiness is virtue would be all well and good, except for the problem of suffering. Namely, when people who are virtuous go through horrific suffering, they don't exactly seem happy. Now, Let's admit this at least. A virtuous man bears up under suffering way better than other people. Right? We call this a virtue of things like magnanimity, self-control, perseverance, long-suffering, which may not be the virtue term, but a real description of what's going on. Right? They don't complain all the time. You know this kind of person? So clearly, virtue helps you stand up. So we can say this, if you lack virtue, plus you suffer, you are going to be two times doubly miserable. First you'll be miserable because you're vicious, and secondly you'll be miserable because you're suffering. Two, the virtuous man. He bears up and interestingly develops virtues like endurance, courage, patience, all those things. Yep. So the normal array of human sufferings deals with that pretty well. What about colossal suffering? And Aristotle offers us an example from his own time, King Priam of Troy. Remember the Trojan War story? King Priam's son goes off, kidnaps or seduces or somehow ends up with Helen, brings her home. The family's like, oh boy, this is going to be a problem. Next thing you know, the Greeks have arrived and they lay siege to the city of Troy. In the process of 10 long years of war, countless Trojan and Greek soldiers are killed. His, his prophetic daughter, Cassandra, ends up imprisoned and mentally ill. His great noble son, Hector, ends up defeated on the battlefield, dragged around, left to dead by Achilles for something like nine to ten days, not allowed to have his proper funeral rites. And then finally, of course, Paris is still alive. And then finally, when the Greeks leave, they leave a great wooden horse 
to show their submission to the Trojans. And of course, Odysseus is hiding in there with a small hit team, right? They come into the city. Everybody's drunk out of their minds. They open the city gates. All the Greek warriors have returned, and they completely burn the city to the ground. And King Priam was a virtuous man. And Aristotle says, seriously, was he happy? What good is virtue then? Well, here's the thing. What cracked King Priam's virtue? Was it the virtue that failed? Or was it a condition that has to be in place in order to be virtuous? Go back to the definition of virtue. It was a rational modification of matter. Clearly the matter's in place, right? You got your body and your brain and all that. Clearly the modifications were in place. He had habituated all these great kingly qualities. So the only thing left would be the rationality. Is it possible that colossal suffering can cause a person to lose it, to crack, to lose their rationality? Well, is, is Job an example of, of this in that he was virtuous, but God was in the picture? Job was a guy who very nearly lost it. God might have helped sustain him ever so slightly to make sure it didn't go bad. Most people in Job's state would have lost it. But the point is, for Priam, God was not in the picture. Is that what you're driving at? Not at all. Not what I'm suggesting is, even if you're a good Catholic and you hit colossal suffering, you go to Vietnam and you participate in those things and you come back completely... I mean, all soldiers come back severely damaged. It's We've now beginning finally to come to grips with what killing does. Even if it's just war killing. And there's lots of other activity. Things happen to people, and people do things themselves. We are both constituted by what has happened to us, by our breeding, our education, our DNA, our traditions and culture. We are hugely constituted, and yet we are still free agents, meaning we are constituting ourselves. So it's the way to think about human beings is beings that are constituted and constituting. That's what's constantly happening to us. So there's a lot that goes into this mix that helps make us what we are. And at some point, if you face a colossal series of hits, your capacity to deal with it, starts you start to lose it. Now, the problem for the pagan virtue theory is it's very much about something you do on your own. And this is where your point is going to start to really press us. Because if we find out that one of our members is being overwhelmed, we say, well, wait a minute. The matter isn't just that one person. We are the body of Christ. And we go and reach out and help. And while that person has lost it, it is under the blanket, back and forth, a person you know would find you like, what in the world happened to this person? We succor that person, we care for that person, we nurture them back to health. We become substitute rationalities for that person, yes? That's what we do. That is where love is so much greater than justice. And we'll see how in Christianity we can deal with this problem. But for Aristotle, the colossal suffering creates something that literally cracks rationality. And this is possible. And we see this in our own realms. That's part of the issue of the mental health. 
because the body consists of things that impact the mind on a physiological nurturing level. And if those things are not properly ordered, and sometimes you can't properly order them because you get cancer or something, and sometimes like when you have Alzheimer's, what? you hear your grandmother with Alzheimer's and you're like, I never knew she had, was on sailing ships. How is this possible? Where's her virtue? Well, it's not really grandma, you know? It's not really grandma. This is not something to be laying blame. You're like, just listen to that. Put a pirate patch on her eye, give her a parrot and a hat. Just realize where we are, okay? Three. Third state. Virtues plus, not suffering, but great fortune. Now, you say, oh, well, that's good. Let's talk about that. I like the sound of that. Every now and then, there's a person who possesses virtue, and the gods favor him. I mean, if Athena is your patron deity, that's nice, right? Especially if you can resist the other gods. Now, poor Odysseus had him, her as his patron deity, but Poseidon hated him, so he was in trouble. Ten long years trying to get home. But the average person, if a god loves you, that's good for you in the mythical world, right? Great fortune. And virtue. If you possess virtue, you're already humanly happy. But if you have great fortune, then the gods are involved and Aristotle calls you blessed. The word for happiness in Greek is eudaimonia. It means being good sold. The word for blessed is makarios in Greek. And would you wonder? I translated it as blessed for a very important reason. In Matthew 5, Jesus starts using this word. Makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Makarios are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Makarios are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. For Aristotle, this is lucky. And it applies to the few that the gods arbitrarily select. For Jesus, it is a universal offer. The only way you're going to have a human solution to the problem of suffering is to have something that fully addresses the problem for all of human beings. That requires a God-sized solution. And what Jesus is offering is that God-sized fix the divine fix, something so huge, so magnificent, that it's going to eclipse the highest of the pagan virtues, justice, with something even greater, love, which will then help us even mitigate against things like colossal suffering. Because we Catholics will be reaching out to the poor, we will keep building the hospitals and the universities and mental hospitals, we've been the ones doing it all along, right? Of course, because we've understood this the whole time, because we're driven by this kind of blessedness. But the great fortune here clearly means there must be a divine solution. What's so interesting about this argument from Aristotle is that Aristotle realizes that genuine human fulfillment requires divine intervention. That is as far as the pagans got. 
But that is a perfect setup for what the Christians are arguing, isn't it? Let's talk about that divine intervention. Yeah? So, Jeff, I still see so many reflections in the book of Job of everything you've talked about. Oh, yes, so. I agree. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with that at all. Right. <laughs> yes? So, okay. So, we can really look at Job yes. to understand so much of what you said. He was virtuous and had great fortune. Yes. Then he had virtues and he, and he suffered and then perhaps he lacked virtue at some point. Or he, God is so impressed with Job that he signals him out as an exemplar. Job is so holy, he doesn't make sacrifices for his own sins. He makes sacrifices for his family's sins. This is at the time when the father figure, the patriarch, was the priest's king type. This was a virtuous guy. And yet still he had something to learn. He makes his case against his friends. And his friends keep saying, you did something wrong, Job. This doesn't happen to good people. And Job's like, look, I, tell me what it is then, because I can't figure it out. And in the end, God rebukes the friends. But then, because Job says, I demand to be heard. And we know from the backstory of Job, there's something going on on a cosmic level between God and Satan. Job does not know that. And frankly, most of the time when we're suffering, whether there is even any divine, big, huge thing or not, we have no idea. People suffer all the time for all kinds of perfectly normal reasons. It hardly requires divine dramas of that sort. But demanding an accountability from the Most High, God points out to Job, okay, well, let's talk about bird migration. Can you explain that? Well, no. Okay, can you, talk, can you tell me about the weather? No. Okay, what about... Question after question after question. And finally, Job says, okay, I get it. I don't even know the natural world. And here I am making you account, demanding you account for divine providence. This is so far above my pay grade, it's inappropriate. Now, we might look at every single one of those things from the end of Job and say, well, we do know why birds migrate. Well, we do know about the sea. Well, we do, right? And that doesn't mean that we're now ready to take on God. What it means is God would hit us with a whole different series of questions, and we would be just as mystified. Okay, So the full reasons why <coughs> we're just never going to know these things until the end, the other side. But we still maintain our commitment to the good, like Job, who said, though he slay me, I'll still trust him. He gave me life. He can take it away. I don't have rights on this scale. And that's a tough thing to come to, to say, I can lose everything, I'm going to still love God. But what is the greatest commandment? With everything. And every so often, one of us is called to put that to the test. And boy, we better love God with everything. Why? Why would you do that? Again, because the supreme good is whom? Is who? God. He's the perfect good. And so to be happy, the only way to be happy is to be ultimately virtuous, which is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. The greatest commandment is not an accident. It could not have been anything else because God is the supreme good and only by loving him can we possibly be happy. But that means that the good must be a person and for Aristotle, he did not know that. So for him, this is as high as he can go. Once we find out, as we already know because last week we already found out God is a person, well, that's going to be great news. Okay? But that story needs to be told by looking more closely at human nature with St. Paul and Romans. 
And we'll start to do that next week when we start talking about salvation and how all these pieces start to come together. How blessedness can be made possible for everybody. And what that's going to take to change the world. Because it's going to require divine invasion. Aristotle hinted at it. And the Christians are going to be like, yep, it happened. Okay, any other questions? All right, next week's. Make sure you have brought along with you Romans 1 through 3. Okay, do we want to have a prayer at the end to finish things off? First, I want to encourage you to do the reading. Just kind of along. I want to um, uh, remind you again about.